We're the Saudi Arabia of gas. This is a great day for energy independence in a growing American economy. A new era in American energy. Low-cost, abundant energy enables us to bring manufacturing back to America. We can bridge the energy poverty gap. We can secure a future of cleaner energy. Welcome to the Empowering America podcast, the podcast that focuses on energy naturally. By harnessing the power of natural gas, we are fueling America's destiny as a global energy superpower. We speak with the biggest players in the fight to provide clean, affordable, and abundant natural gas about continuing the natural gas revolution and fighting back against the Green New Deal. Now, here's your host, Ian Pryor. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Ian Pryor and Autria Lindsay, your hosts of the Empowering America podcast. We have a great show planned today. As one IHS market report puts it, if the Marcellus region were a country, it would currently rank third globally in natural gas production, behind only the rest of the United States and Russia. Joining us today on the Empowering America podcast is Congressman Bill Johnson. Congressman Johnson sits on the House Energy and Commerce Committee and represents Ohio's 6th Congressional District, which just happens to sit atop the Marcellus Shale. Also joining us today is Jerry James with Shale Crescent USA, a nonprofit focused on encouraging business growth along the Ohio River Valley by utilizing low-cost natural gas. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Congressman, this is for you. You have described energy dominance and dominance being independence and security as the next great frontier for America, and have stated that you support a true all-of-the-above approach to energy development. What does an all-of-the-above approach entail? Well, thanks, Ian. I can tell you, all-of-the-above means exactly that, all-of-the-above. That includes oil and gas, coal, nuclear, and there's even a place in America's energy portfolio for renewables and alternative fuels like wind and solar and biofuels. But look, we got to face the facts that today, natural gas and oil, coal and nuclear are the heavy lifting sources of the power generation that fuel America's energy grid. One of these days, some smart guy is going to figure out how to harness the sun's energy or the wind's energy and put it in a bottle so we can pour it out on our energy grid on demand. But until that happens, we need natural gas. We need coal and we need nuclear. I do believe that energy independence and security are the next great frontier. But here in our region of the country, that frontier is here now because we've enjoyed many of the benefits of American energy dominance, uh, what with all the vast energy reserves that we have here in the Shell Crescent region of the country. Vice President Pence laid it out well last night when he highlighted America's free market being the best tool not only to increase energy jobs, prosperity, and affordable energy costs to, uh, to consumers, but also to further advance America's solid record of good environmental stewardship by reducing carbon emissions even further, like we have seen several years through the use of cheap, reliable, clean-burning natural gas for electric power generation. Now, I just want to do a quick follow-up here, because you referenced Vice President Pence in the debate, but on the other side, between you know both former Vice President Joe Biden and, and Senator Kamala Harris, how are voters and constituents supposed to understand what their position is on fracking? It doesn't seem that there's a consistent message that they have. I mean, they, 
the, the Green New Deal is, is on the website, is on Joe Biden's website, as Vice President Pence pointed out. Uh, Senator Harris embraced the Green New Deal, but yet they're saying they're not for the Green New Deal. Uh, I, Ian, that's one of the befuddling parts of, uh, of this entire election cycle. They can say one thing today, and then they can totally deny that and say something else tomorrow, and they think that that suddenly makes it true. Well, it doesn't. Joe Biden has said that he will uh, uh, outlaw, make uh, hydraulic fracturing illegal in America. He has said that the Green New Deal, in fact, it's out on his website. If you look at his policy agenda, it is the first sentence in his policy agenda about how crucial the Green New Deal is. And let's not forget that the Green New Deal is not just about natural gas. It's about a zero carbon emission society in our country over the next 15 years. We're talking about not being able to fly in commercial airliners. I don't know how we're going to power our uh, military platforms, our jets, our bombers, et cetera. And, and it also means that, uh, that hydraulic fracturing and all the jobs that go along with it and, and the increase in, uh, in consumer utility costs, uh, it is astronomical. And let's not forget what was pointed out last night. Senator Harris, Kamala Harris, was actually an original co-sponsor of the Green New Deal. So they can't run for cover from this uh, very long. Uh, it's catching up with them, and the American people deserve to know the truth. They want to ban fossil fuels, natural gas being one of the biggest ones of those. You know, if I might, because the congressman really made me think of something. And as an engineer, this is what I find often people miss. Wind and solar, you know, alternative energies only make one product, and that's electricity. Unfortunately, they don't make it 24 hours a day, nor 365 days a year. But the real problem is there are over 5,000 products made from oil and gas. That's right. Everything everybody touches every day, from the carpet on the floor to your synthetic clothes, to your athletic gear, to your athletic apparel. And as we learned during the COVID crisis, most of our personal protection equipment is made from hydrocarbons. So as an engineer, I'm at a loss when they talk about trying to substitute just one part of the fuel. The electricity grid is just a small part of the overall products that we derive from oil and gas. Jerry, just piggybacking off of that a little bit, um, we know that the mission of your organization is to try to educate these policymakers and C-suite executives on the potential for economic and strategic advantages for their businesses when it comes to harnessing and utilizing natural gas resources. Why does it seem like that is such a hard message to get across and what is the biggest obstacle? Well, I, I would answer your question. Awareness by the decision makers is the hardest thing. I once read that sometime once you have a huge technology change, it takes almost 20 years for that to become accepted uh, amongst the populace. If you look at it, we're about 10 years into horizontal drilling, which is really what's revolutionized oil and gas production. The hydraulic fracturing is the same hydraulic fracturing that has went on for over 60 years. It's really the horizontal drilling part that's changed it. So when we deal with people, people just aren't aware of how much this has changed the business environment. We had a great lead in right there that said the third largest natural gas producer in the world now would be the countries, if Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania be our country. That was some early research done by Shale Crescent, but that's only half the equation. Because this area is at the seat 
of where the industrial revolution took place in the United States. We also have 70% of the demand for polyethylene, which comes from the ethane molecule from natural gas. We have 78% of the demand for polypropylene, which is from the propane molecule from natural gas. So there is an enormous opportunity for manufacturers to reduce their cost by building on top the feedstock, since we're one of the largest sources of natural gas in the world, and in the center of one of the largest economies in the world and where the demand for the product is. They can greatly reduce their cost. The trouble is this has all happened so quickly. Trying to communicate to those decision makers is really why we form Shale Crescent. I want to go back to the congressman for a second here. A report from the Department of Energy just four months ago highlighted the wide-ranging opportunities for economic recovery and growth, specifically for the Shale Crescent region. It called the potential not only for recovery, but for new economic growth on a scale we haven't seen since the Industrial Revolution. As the country struggles right now to get out of this post-pandemic ditch, how can the Shale Crescent region lead the way? Well, it's, it's, it's been leading the way. You know, I came into office in January of 2011, uh, and, and I, I did a, a very short promotional video uh, uh, back 2011, 2012, called Energy Vision 2020. And, and, and it talked about how uh, the energy renaissance with oil and gas and, uh, and, and, and even coal could revolutionize uh, job opportunities and economic prosperity for our region of the country. If you look at what has happened in eastern and southeastern Ohio since uh, 2011, the drop in unemployment, largely driven by energy development and all of the jobs that go around energy development, particularly uh, oil and natural gas, uh, the, the drop in unemployment has been tremendous. Most of my counties have dropped uh, upwards of 50%, some of them topping 60%. And, and people in my district, uh, people in my region here uh, have had uh, economic growth opportunities that they never thought were going to come their way. People and businesses are actually looking at how to move into our region because the Shell Crescent region of the country is the most profitable location in the country to invest in a petrochemical facility, for example. Uh, it, it is mind-boggling uh, that it's taken this long for people to understand that. In fact, you can't go anywhere in the world, and I have traveled all over the globe, you can't go anywhere in the world and talk about energy that you don't see a map of eastern and southeastern Ohio on the wall because people know, not only here in the United States, but all over the world, that this is where it's happening. And I wanna take that sentiment, Congressman, and kind of pivot towards 85% of the increased natural gas production in the United States does come from the Shell Crescent region. However, we've learned that the all new chemical investments tend to occur in the Gulf Coast, where there's actually been very little increase in natural gas supply. Why is that the case, Jerry? Um, I think it really boils down to one of the volunteers we have from Shale Crescent is a gentleman named Wally Candle. Wally's worked all the way around the world. He's a senior level executive um, with a chemical company, and he has a really great statement. He says, you know, for 75 years, the right place to build was the Gulf Coast. Most of the people making decisions on where do those plants were built are my age. They've been in the business for over 40 years. 
And so they grew up their entire careers with building on the Gulf Coast was the right place. You know, there's been over $200 billion invested in over 300 projects. 85% of those we've done the research was on the Gulf Coast. But, you know, being technical type people, we do a lot of in-depth research. What we found out is most of those decisions were green-lighted at the beginning of the shale revolution, like say in 2012, 2013, 2014. What we're finding now when we sat down with these executives and we explained to them, as you alluded to in your question, that 85% of the growth in natural gas is actually occurring from Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania. And there's a huge economic savings from locating up here and avoiding the transportation costs. Plus their customers are already up here too, as I alluded to earlier. They start to see the value of benefiting, the benefit of being here. But it's just like everything, it takes time to educate people when there's been that change that they've never seen in their entire life. Yeah, and Altria, to piggyback on that, Jerry is exactly right. The economics uh, make the case for building these petrochemical facilities here, but there's a national security imperative too. And I can tell you that President Donald Trump and, uh, and the energy secretary, uh, both the, the original one, uh, Rick Perry, and, and the current one, they certainly understand that we need a plan B. And the president has in mind uh, uh, the goal to replicate the petrochemical empire that currently exists down on the Gulf Coast, right here along the Ohio River Basin, Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, where all of that natural gas energy reserves are. Because look at what's happening. If you have bad actors, whether they are a criminal element or a terrorist that takes out a, a petrochemical facility on the Gulf Coast or a hurricane that throttles our ability to, uh, to refine and produce, we need a backup plan. We don't have one right now. There is no better place in the nation to make the host of that backup plan than right here in the Marcellus, uh, the Shell Crescent region of the country. Uh, Congressman, let me ask you, if, if elements of the Green New Deal were put into place, what would that do to our national security and our consumer costs? Oh, <laughs> that's a real easy one, Ian. Uh, they would go through the roof. Our, our, uh, our national security would be threatened, and not only because of not having the economics there to do the things that we need to do to provide for our own national security, but consumers, residential people, middle-class Americans, and low-income families, they would see skyrocketing energy costs. And so we cannot allow this Green New Deal mentality to continue. I'm, I have to be honest with you, having served in the U.S. House now for almost 10 years, I, I am actually shocked that this radical ideology has gotten traction and that it's even being talked about during a presidential or vice presidential debate. It blows my mind that there are those in this country that think that you can do away with fossil fuels and go to a zero emission economy in 15 years without wrecking America's economy and threatening our national security. You know, if I might follow the congressman, he makes a really important statement that I don't see anybody else making. And that is, you know, having been in this business, I first get in this business 
and decided to become a petroleum engineer in 1974. Now, why that's unique is that was when we were at a period of an extreme recession brought on by the first Arab oil embargo. And I can tell you something, every recession that we this country's experienced from 1974 all the way through 2008, every one of those recessions was preceded by a spike in oil prices. There's even a great chart from the Federal Reserve that correlates recessions and a spike in energy prices. What the congressman just said right there is something very few people understand, and I'm afraid very few decision makers understand. If you go to a more expensive energy form, it is going to put this country into a permanent depression because the majority of the people in this country, I think over half Americans have less than $500 in the bank. They just barely live paycheck to paycheck. You double, triple, or quadruple their energy prices, it'll just be devastating for the economy and particularly the poorest people in our economy. Given everything that you both laid out with the skyrocketing energy prices, with the threat to national security, kind of going back to what the congressman said, and you can both weigh in on this, why do you think it is that this Green New Deal has gained such traction and that you have what used to be moderate Democrats backing the proposal? You know, that's a that's a good question because, uh, you know, I'm a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus in uh, in the House. And, and there are some common sense Democrats uh, that, that I work with that understand that you cannot eliminate fossil fuels uh, like that, like, like flipping a switch, and that the world is suddenly going to be a better place. Uh, look, I, I am all about progress. You know, I, I'm an information technologist, and I know, I know what happened in the information technology uh, sector of our economy uh, over the uh, the century and a half after the Civil War. I mean, we brought that technology to the rest of the world. I know there are going to be great energy discoveries in the future, but this idea that we can simply do away with fossil fuels, which would essentially mean throttling America's economy. And let's don't forget about the international and the diplomatic leverage that being at the head of the energy table, the global energy sector uh, table, is so vitally important. Take, take Russia, for example. We changed the conversation with Russia when America got into natural gas uh, exporting. Now, we, we still don't do it at the level that I think we should be doing it, and I think we should be exporting a lot more. But, but Russia gets about 50% of their tax revenue from the sale of oil and gas. About 70% of that resource runs through pipelines that go under the nation of the Ukraine. So anybody that thinks that the Russians invaded uh, Crimea because they want to grab a hold of of the Ukrainian people, nothing could be further from the truth. They want the land because that's where their pipelines go. But they were the ones that were raising this this false bar, keeping the world price of natural gas up in the $12 and $13 range uh, versus what it was here in America before we were allowed to export. We have changed that dynamic, and we have had a very, very serious impact on Russia's economy, not with bullets and bombs, but simply by outcompeting them in the energy global markets. So there is so much that we need to be concerned about when you start talking about this Green New Deal. And I want to go back to something that that I want to remind us of. You might remember several years ago during one of his 
uh, State of the Union addresses, uh, President Barack Obama made it very, very clear. He said in the State of the Union that we were going to get America off of dependence on fossil fuels. Well, I just don't see that as a realistic goal. I think we can accomplish so much more uh, by learning how to burn clean-burning natural gas more effectively and, uh, and converting vehicles to natural gas than trying to eliminate fossil fuels. It's an absolute absurd and crazy notion. To kind of play off what the congressman said there, you know, I think we in the oil and gas industry have done a horrible job over the years of educating the public on the benefits of hydrocarbons. You know, if you stand back and take a broad perspective on it, we know what life before hydrocarbons was like. You know, about 100, 125 years ago, our forefathers and, and grandmothers, they never had hydrocarbons. Life expectancy was half of what it is today. Furthermore, the average person lived and died and never traveled any more than 10 miles from home. And it took 95% of the people working in agriculture to feed 100% of the people. Today, we're down to less than 3% feed 100%. Why is that? It's hydrocarbons. It's made life dramatically better. It's made life dramatically safer. And it's made life dramatically richer for everyone in the world. But we in the industry have not explained the benefits to people. So they tend to think that elimination of hydrocarbons would make their lives better, when in true, what would happen is their lives would be a lot worse. And that's really our fault for not explaining it to them. All right. Well, this has been a great discussion. I want to thank both of you, Congressman Johnson and Jerry James from Shale Crescent. This is a really uh, educational and great discussion that I think um, it's important for, for people to hear as, as we talk about our, our energy future. Well, thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate you having me. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.